Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. Towards the end of Technologies of the Self, Michel Foucault shifts his attention to Christianity and he makes a couple very useful points. His, his treatment, we shouldn't look at it as meant to be an adequate explanation of what's going on in the, the shift to Christian culture per se, but rather as providing some interesting illumination because clearly as a, an account of what's going on in the first couple centuries, it's rather selective and inadequate. So he tells us that he wants to look at this transition from pagan to Christian culture. You notice that one of the things that's going to come up in this that's of of significant interest is how stoic technologies of the self or modes of care of the self, things that were arguably not just stoic, but the stoics were sort of leading the charge in that got transformed and incorporated in a different context to become something quite different, almost in some respects unrecognizable from their original forms. And he points out a couple important aspects of Christianity. Again, not totally unique to Christianity in some respects when we look at religions, particularly if we're thinking about misty religions in the ancient world. So he tells us that I wish to examine the scheme of one of the main techniques of the self in early Christianity and what it was as a truth game. So there's clear cut continuities and discontinuities in the transition from pagan to Christian culture. Christianity belongs to the salvation religions. It's one of those religions which is supposed to lead the individual from one reality to another, from death to life, from time to eternity. Again, not totally unique even in the Mediterranean and Near East since you have all also mystery religions going on as well. In order to achieve this, Christianity imposed a set of conditions and rules of behavior for a certain transformation of the self. This is really key. He says it's not only a salvation religion, so that's one thing. That would include it with like, say, Buddhism and Zoroastrianism, right? It's also a confessional religion. It imposes very strict obligations of truth, dogma, and canon, more so than do the pagan religions. Truth obligations to believe this or that were and are still very numerous. The duty to accept a set of obligations to hold certain books as a permanent truth, to accept authoritarian decisions and matters of truth, not only to believe certain things, but to show that one believes, to accept institutional authority, all characteristic of Christianity. Not exclusively characteristic of Christianity, but certainly playing a role and, and something representing a kind of new attitude towards things. Now, how how strict is this if we are, it depends on which Christian we're looking at. If we're looking at Cassian, we get one point of view. If we're looking at Clement of Alexandria, we get another point of view. If we're looking at Tertullian, we get another point of view. So we'll put that, we'll bracket that issue for a moment. So what are these obligations? There's truth obligations. And some of these are obligations about belief, right? Some of them, he says, are also obligations about action. You have to do things in a certain way and some are authority. And then there's another set of obligations. And this is where Foucault is really interested. 
He says that Christianity requires another form of truth obligation different from faith. Each person has the duty to know who he is, that is to try to know what is happening inside him, to acknowledge faults, to recognize temptations, to locate desires. Everyone is obligated to disclose these things either to God or to others in the community and hence to bear public or private witness against himself. Truth obligations of faith and the self are linked together. The link permits a purification of the soul impossible without self-knowledge. So again, we see the care of the self and self-knowledge, but now they're being configured in a way that's different than say pagan philosophies or even you know uh, what's left of pagan religion at the time. So there's an obligation to know the truth of the self and Foucault isolates out two main ways of doing this. Now, here's where we have to ask, are these the only ways that early Christians and like say the first five centuries of Christianity were making sense of these things? Definitely not. I mean, he even talks about Chrysostom as, you know, providing an example of something that, that's different when it comes to self-examination. So these are things that he's isolating out as sort of main developments, but don't assume that they apply to every single Christian author or every single Christian practitioner at the time. It's a little bit more complex than that. And so he identifies, if we jump to the very end, two main new technologies of the self. And he uses the Greek terms for these, exomologate, and ex agoreosis. So exomologesis is, as he's going to say at the end, dramatic expression of the situation of the penitent as sinner, which makes manifest his status as sinner, right? So what does that mean? There is some way in which the sinner, the, the self is saying, I am a sinner. I am penitent. I recognize the wrongness of this. I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to make myself commit to things and thereby the sin is going to be you know, not just brought forth, but also dealt with in, in important ways. And it's done in dramatic manner, meaning there is a narrative and it's being done in relation to other people or internalized within the self. Exagoreosis, he says, an analytical and continual verbalization of thoughts carried out in the relation of complete obedience to someone else. This relation modeled on the renunciation of one's own will and one's own self. Now that's, that's a bit of a ideal there rather than a practice, the continual verbalization of thoughts. If there was the continual verbalization of thoughts the way Foucault depicts it, then we would have a much vaster monastic and confessional literature than, than we do. And monks would never be able to get anything else done. <laughs> Right? And, and so we have to be a little bit skeptical of this, but the verbalization of, of thoughts, the examination of what's going on in relation to obedience to a superior, ultimately all, all, all the way up to the God as the ultimate superior, or you could say God, the Trinity, the saints, you know, whatever it is that we want to conceive of it, including St. Benedict, one of the very important early monastic writers. And he says, there's a great difference between exomologesis and exagoreosis, but we have to underscore the fact there's one important element in common. You cannot disclose without renouncing. So you disclose and renounce, you renounce by disclosing. There's a certain dialectical relationship there. You disclose who you are. You also renounce who you are in, in the hopes that you can become a better who you are as a result. So let, let's talk about exomologesis, what Foucault has to say about this in particular. He tells us that this involves 
recognizing the, the self as a sinner and as a penitent. Exomologesis is recognition of fact, recognition of who you are, what you are. So it has a penitential meaning. You are seeking penance. You announce to somebody, it could be the bishop, could be the, the community, that you are a sinner. And then you do penance for quite a while. You're not, you're not just going to confession and then say 15 Hail Marys and try not to do this stuff again. No, it's years and years and years of quite public, in some respects, demonstrations, right? Like he says, the sinner seeks his penance. He visits the bishop, asks the bishop to impose on him the status of the penitent. He must explain why he wants the status. He must explain his faults. It's an explanation of his status. Tertullian talks about people wearing hair shirts and ashes, standing humbled before the church, prostrating oneself, kissing the brethren's knees. It's not just a verbal behavior. It's a dramatic recognition of one's, one's status. And he says, it also designates the entire process that the penitent experiences in the status over the years. They are engaging in self-punishment as well as self-revelation. The acts by which he punishes himself are indistinguishable from the acts by which he reveals himself. And so it's not nominal, but as he says, theatrical. Tertullian uses this term publicatio sui to characterize it. And Foucault points out this is related to Seneca's daily self-examination. But for Seneca, it doesn't imply verbal analysis of deeds or thoughts. It's only a somatic and symbolic expression. What was private for the Stoics was public for the Christians. And he says, what was the functions of this? Well, by publicizing your sins, you in some way wipe them out. You restore the purity acquired by baptism. It also shows the sinner as they are. So this is the paradox. It rubs out the sin, yet reveals the sinner. And then he asks, well, why would showing forth efface the sins? Here's where we get three interesting models that he brings up. One of which is a medical model. You show your sins, like you, you know, you take your shirt off and you show the sores so the doctor can heal you. Right? So that's one way. Another is, as he says, less frequent, the tribunal model. You appease your judge by confessing faults. So the sinner plays devil's advocate, as will the devil on the day of judgment. And then he says the most important model to explain exomologesis is the model of death, torture, or martyrdom. The theories and practices of penitence are elaborated around the problem of the person who prefers to die rather than to compromise or abandon the faith. And, and he doesn't bring this up, but really what this amounts to is kind of a split within the self of I am turning against my sins, which threaten to you know, bring me down to death. I'm going to in some way testify to the fact that I'm not just the sum of my sins and their effects. So those are three models. And so Foucault says that this is a you know, very important early Christian technology of the self to understand the self as the sinning penitent and perhaps to be redeemed self. And then there's ex agreusis, right? says, during the fourth century, we find a very different technology for disclosure of the self. This one is reminiscent of the verbalizing exercises in relation of, to a teacher master of the pagan philosophical schools. And we can see the transfer of several stoic techniques of the self to Christian spiritual techniques. And this is where, again, he brings up Chrysostom and he says, okay, so we're going to put him aside. <laughs> And this should tell us right here that, well, if we expand our purview of the early Christian literature, this might not bear out exactly what Foucault is telling us here. He goes on and he says, the well-developed and elaborate practice of the self-examination in monastic Christianity is what we're talking about here. Uh, and there's two main aspects to this, obedience and contemplation. 
Now, I want to take a pause here. The main person that he's bringing up is John Cassian. And John Cassian is a very important author for early Christian monasticism. What we want to keep in mind is that Cassian and a friend of his are from the West, and then they travel to Palestine to find out how people are doing monasticism there. Why do they do that? Because monasticism in the West is really not that big of a thing at this point in time. And it's viewed that the Palestinians have got it down better. They've got better techniques. They have more to offer. The Palestinians then tell him, oh, you know, where you really want to go is Egypt because they're the ones who really do the stuff. Go out in the desert with the monks there and, you know, interview the abbots and see what they have to say. And John Cassian produces the two most important works are the, the Institutes and the Conferences or Conversations, right? The Institutes is a very systematic work about what monasticism ought to look like. Much of it is spent on analysis and prescriptions about the eight capital vices that later on become the seven deadly sins. Foucault doesn't mention that at all here. There's also some other important things. And then there's the conversations with the abbots about a whole range of different things. And, and so Foucault is getting some of this out of there but there's other monastic literature that's talking about obedience as well. So he says, obedience has a very different character in monastic life. It must bear on all aspects of a monk's life. There's no element of the life of the monk which may escape from this fundamental and permanent relation of total obedience to the master. Who's the master in this case? Probably the prior, the abbot, you know, somebody else. And he goes on and he says, Cassian repeats an old principle from the Oriental tradition. Everything the monk does without permission of his master constitutes a theft. Obedience is complete control of behavior by the master, not a final autonomous state. It is a sacrifice of the self, of the subject's own will. This is the new technology of the self. Okay, so there, there's, you know, this is largely correct. Further reading of monastic literature would re reveal there's a lot more to it than that. But let's go on. The second feature of monastic life is that contemplation is considered the supreme good. Contemplation of what? Contemplation of God, which can only really happen if your contemplating is coming from a pure heart. So you have to figure out what your sins are and also figure out where the instabilities lie within your conscience or consciousness. And this is where, you know, Cassian's eight principal vices, which were originally Evagrius Ponticus's eight thoughts can come in, right? You might be distracted by vainglory or gluttony or wrath or Acadia, you know, this restlessness or sadness. Those are problems. And so he says that the technology of self-examination dominated by obedience and contemplation becomes much more concerned with thought than action. Seneca places stress on action. With Cassian, the object is not past actions of the day, it's your present thoughts. Because the monk must continuously turn his thoughts to God, he must scrutinize the actual course of this thought. And so the scrutiny of conscience consists in trying to immobilize consciousness to eliminate movements of the spirit, which divert one from God. Foucault presents this in a very static way. And he, he talks about a couple different metaphors that, that Cassian has. The analogy of the mill, thoughts are like grains. We want to have the right grains. Military analogies, officer ordering good soldiers who march to the right, bad to the left. 
And then the analogy of a money changer, you have to examine coins, their effigy, their metal, where they came from. And this is, this is all quite true. Cassian has many more images than these. If you actually read through his works. And so you might say, why these in particular? Because they fit the narrative that Foucault is, is telling us here. So we do have, you know, new Christian technologies of the self that are developing. There's more, you know, much more that could be said about this. This is what Foucault here has to say about this transition from pagan to Christian culture and these new or you could call them, you know, revised technologies of the self that are coming onto the scene and becoming part of at least a portion of the Western consciousness. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.